This is what they felt like when it happened. And today, it's how we should feel too. Because what it meant for them, it means for us. Yeah, the resurrection by, by uh, modern telephone. It's a great, great video. Uh, guys, what's the only what's the only thing that separates us today, this Resurrection Sunday, from that first Resurrection Sunday? What is it that separates us from that? It's only one thing. It's just a little bit of time. Only difference, only thing that separates us from them, is a little bit of time. And the resurrection remains as singularly important today, as singularly defining for every life on planet Earth today as it did then, the power and the message of the person who turned the world upside down almost 2,000 years ago remains the same. We face the same issues today they did then. I want to cover five points on why the resurrection is as meaningful today as it's ever been. The first is this. So what's happened to every generation from the resurrection to now? And what's happened to every individual who's lived on planet Earth since the resurrection occurred? One thing has happened to everyone, every generation, every person, and that is that they have all died. Death has found every one of them out. Every former generation and every person of every former generation. Now I assume we're here this morning either because we believe in life after death, life past the grave, or we hope there's life past the grave, or at least we're open to the possibility of that. Jesus had a discussion in Luke chapter 20 along this theme and this line, and he was talking to his version of the new atheists, the Sadducees of his day, said, when you die, that's all there is. Life is contained in the body. When the body dies, you're dead. That's it. That's the end of your existence. And Jesus says, not so. This is what he said. Luke 20, verse 37, he said, That the dead are raised, that there's life after death, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now, he is not God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. 
So to a group that says life ends with the grave, Jesus says, not so. Those folks that you knew that lived here previously and died, they haven't ceased to exist. They live to God. And like every other soul that's lived on the planet, they await a day of future resurrection. Everyone gets a body going forward. And the only question is, where does that eternity, where is it going to be spent? And in what condition with, and with who? Because everyone rises from the dead. And the, the only thing that separates us in the future and eternity is whether we spend that under God's righteous judgment forever, time without end, or whether we endure, exist, in pleasures forevermore in Jesus' presence. That's the deal. We live on forever. It's profound, it's exciting, and it's potentially a terrifying thought. The question then becomes, what does my eternity look like going forward? What can I expect in time that never ends? What will be true of my fate going forward? Jesus in John 11 is in a situation in which someone has died. His friend Lazarus had died. And Jesus had intentionally waited till he'd been long and buried in the tomb. And he came down four days later and he spoke to Mary and Martha, Lazarus's sisters. And he said this, and imagine the scene in your mind. He's outside a tomb. They know this guy's dead four days in the tomb. And Jesus says this, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Now, Jesus isn't talking about physical death, but he's talking about spiritual death. He said, I'm the resurrection, I'm life. If you have me, you have life always. Now, if you were standing there and you were in the audience and you heard Jesus say this, in front of a dead man's tomb, that might sound just like empty words, empty talk. But he didn't stop there. And then he cried out, Lazarus, come forth. And a guy dead four days in the tomb got up from the dead and walked out alive. And that imagery prefigures a day, we'll read in just a moment, in which Jesus is going to call and the dead are going to rise. One of the preacher's jokes says this, that Jesus called Lazarus by name because otherwise all the dead would have risen when he said, come forth. But Jesus is going to call in the future and all the dead are going to rise. The claim might have sounded hollow until he called and Lazarus rose. The resurrection still matters for this reason. Friends, we die. You're here for a short period. And you die. Unless the Lord comes back and we hear the trumpet and he shouts, we're going to die. Every one of us here is going to die. What does our eternity hold for us? We die. We need to know the Lord of life. The second thing that remains the same for humanity in all our ages is this. Jesus' resurrection matters because his resurrection is evidence that we can be in right relationship with God the Father. You know, there's a secret not so well kept depending on who you're with or when. But guys, we're broken and we are not what we should be. And in honest moments, we know that. And the deal is this. We were created perfect in God's image. We were meant to have face-to-face -face relationship and fellowship, nothing hindering us with God. But our first parents sinned and that relationship was broken and it's never been the same since. 
And fallen people separated from the life of God produced fallen people separated from the life of God. And that's our quandary. We know we're not who and what we were meant to be. And we see this because sometimes we sin, and that simply means we do things we know we shouldn't do. Other times we know we should do things and we refuse to. And totally apart from words or actions, do we not all have those singular moments when we look in our own souls and we know, I don't like what I see. My anger, my rage, my jealousy, my lust, my greed, my backbiting, my hatefulness, and the list goes on and on. We know we are broken. We're all created to be in relationship with God, and yet that has been severed because of our first parents' sins and our own sins. Now that this condition that we know we're made for more, meant for more, but not there, it's shared by everyone through all generations. Augustine in the fourth century said this, and this was a guy who'd lived a life of pleasure, who'd refused Christ, eventually bowed, and when he came, after he came to know Christ, he said this, You've made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in you. You know, people use all kinds of things to try and cover up that broken fellowship with God. All kinds of things, all manners of things. Nothing will do except restored relationship with the Father through Jesus the Son. This is the way Pascal said it in the 17th century. There's a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every man which cannot be filled by any created thing but only by God, the Creator made known through Jesus that sense of emptiness, that knowledge that we're not who and what we should be, is due to that broken relationship with God. Now, sin affects all of us, and it affects all of us all the time, in one way or another. And the fruit of sin is always death. And friends, you cannot get away from this. When we sin, we experience death. It could be in the sense of guilt, frustration, anxiety, shame, Unholy anger, but all of these are the shadows, the fruit of death. For our perfect and perfectly holy God to be free to take us back, sin has got to be dealt with. He's got to do something about our sin or we can't get back into that face-to-face relationship that we all know we need. Now, God did something about that. Hallelujah. Thank God on Resurrection Sunday. Paul put it this way in Romans 4, 24 and 25. He says two things. He said, Jesus, our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses. That's our sins borne by someone who hadn't committed sin. We call that atonement. Jesus atones for our sin. He's delivered up for our trespasses. But then Paul says, and he was raised for our justification. That Jesus' resurrection from the dead said, sin is paid for. God is now free to restore us to right relationship and justify us. And that means that we're everything God means us to be in Christ through the resurrection. Jesus' resurrection still matters because in it, God was proclaiming sin was atoned for, sin was covered, and his perfect righteousness could be ours in and because of Jesus risen from the dead. Uh, One of the major things any and all of us find that we struggle with in this life is this thing called forgiveness. And if I ask you now in this moment, uh, who has wronged you in the past? Who has done wrong by you? How long does it take for someone's name 
or image or face or memory or recollection to come to mind about the multitude of ways others have sinned against us. Because we sin, right? Well-meaning, as well-intentioned as we may be, we still sin. Everyone is sinned against and everyone sins. What do we do with those grievances, those sins others have committed against us? What do we do with those? The tendency is we hold on to those like a long-lost child, don't we? And we meditate on them. And we turn those thoughts and those memories over in our mind as if we can do one of two things. We can punish the person who harmed us somehow by turning that over, by refusing to forgive them. Or somehow we can change the past by going over it in our mind over and over and over again. And you know what? It never works. When we hold on to the sins others have committed against us, we only harm ourselves. It's the cords of death that tie us back to that offense however long ago that was. Do you know some of us are bearing a grudge, we're refusing to forgive people that don't live near us and have no idea we're at odds with them. Some of us hold grudges against people that have themselves died. Those folks have no idea that we're still angry or embittered. It doesn't hurt them. It just hurts us. We hold on to those unforgiven elements to our own hurt and cost. Now, all of us have a sense of justice, and sometimes when we're thinking about the harms others others have committed against us, we're thinking, Lord, this isn't just, it's not right. We might say it's not fair. There certainly is that element, and thankfully, the God that we know, love, and serve judges all things appropriately. So that's not a That's not an issue for us. More often than not, though, the thing is this. It's our own proud and sinful nature that refuses to forgive others. Now, friends, forgiveness for a Christian is not an option. It's a command. And if you were here on Good Friday and put this memory in your banks right now, when Jesus, the most innocent person, the only innocent person who's ever walked the earth, the most heinous crime ever committed was the crucifixion of God the Son, From the cross, suffering from man unjustly, he prays, Father, forgive them. And when Jesus' disciples said, Master, Lord, teach us how to pray, Jesus in that very short model prayer says, Father, forgive us as we forgive others. Forgiveness is not an option for a Christian. But what we find is this, that in our own proud, sinful selves, forgiveness is impossible. In our pride, in our sinfulness, we simply want to hold on to those past grievances, and it's always to our harm. Jesus' resurrection and the life of the resurrected Christ in us gives us the ability to forgive others as we ourselves have been forgiven. Related to change also, forgiveness is one element of change, but change in general, Jesus' resurrection still matters because we aspire to change, and by that I mean to be different and better than we know ourselves to be. I invited a neighbor to church some time ago, and he's a droll individual, and he had a canned response ready for me. He'd been invited to church, no doubt, before. He said, uh, Mike, I'm a sinner, and so I don't go to church. Now, this was totally sarcastic. So he's really saying two things. Mike, Christians are hypocrites. They're posers. They pretend to be better than they are, better than others, better than me. 
And the second thing he was inferring is this. I, on the other hand, am honest about myself and my faults, and therefore, of course, I am morally superior to hypocritical Christians sitting in church on Sunday morning. Now, of course, both of those thoughts, those inferences, they're self-serving and they're both false. Christians have a real righteousness in Christ. That's not made up. That's not make-believe. We don't always live that out well, but we have something that has nothing to do with hypocrisy or our ability to walk that out. The second thing is this. Anyone who's rejecting Christ is anything but morally superior. A person that rejects Christ is anything but morally superior. I told my neighbor that sinners were the stuff the church of Jesus Christ is made up of. And that if he knew he was a sinner, the church was exactly the place for him to be. Listen to the way Paul describes Christians based on where they came from. Their starting point. This is from 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11. through 11. Paul says, Don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. That's a rogues gallery, isn't it? That's what he meant. And then pointedly he says, verse 11, such were some of you. You Christians in the church in Corinth, that lifestyle, those lifestyles, those sins, that represents your past. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were made holy, you were justified. God says you're in right standing again in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. I told first service I wouldn't ask for any show of hands on how many identified with this rogues gallery from 1 Corinthians. But if you don't find yourself there, you will find yourself in Paul's second list from Titus 3. Paul includes himself in this list. Paul says, We ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration, the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The second list gets us if the first list does not. That's the stuff the church is made of. So how does God make immoral, idolatrous, adulterous, envious, hateful people like us into people who are fit for the courts of heaven? How does a moral pauper become a spiritual prince? And how do the hateful become the beloved? And the answer is the power of Jesus' resurrection is what's in us that enables us to have real and lasting change. Friends, the resurrection was a demonstration of power, of power of life over death, of God the Son over sin and death. The resurrection was an issue of power. Listen to the way Paul says this in Romans 1, verse 4. Jesus was declared the Son of God with power by resurrection from the dead. 
And then Paul in his prayer in Philippians 3.10 says this, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. You see, the truth is every Christian has within himself or herself the same power that raised Jesus from the dead indwelling them, indwelling us. Friends, it's not for spiritual power that Christians don't see effective change in their life. It might be the renewing of the mind. It might be that our will hasn't come around. But the power that raised Jesus from the dead indwells every believer. We have power to see real change in our lives, real and lasting change. We don't stay where we started. The rough, sinful elements of life, that's where we start. But God indwells us by the Spirit, Jesus' own life. He brings with him that resurrection power and gives us the power to change. Guys, the last point is this. The resurrection remains the hinge point for all of history, for all of time, for all of us, for this reason. The resurrection determines that every one of us will see, will face Jesus as either our Savior or our judge. The resurrection is the point upon which God says all of us will see in Jesus either our Savior or our judge. Paul was preaching in Acts. This is from Acts 17. He's on Mars Hill. He's talking to a bunch of academics and philosophers, but he's making a very keen point to them. And he says in part this, Times of ignorance God has overlooked the past, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent to repent of their alienation and their rebellion against God because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed who has God appointed to act as a judge over all the earth he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead the one that died on the cross for the sins of the world and rose from the dead will face every one of us face to face as either our Savior or our judge. And pause for just a second. There are many people, and it's popular in the world today, for people to say, because God is loving, he would never judge me for my sin. And to that we just say, hold on, just an ounce of logic here. If God the Son put on flesh to be punished by God the Father for our sins... Why would God the Father not be willing to push rebels against his name and against his son? Does that make any sense whatsoever? We choose to face Jesus as either our Savior or our judge. The certainty that we face judgment and the certainty of the one we face as judge are made clear by Jesus' resurrection from the dead. Uh, Revelation 20 verses 11 through 15 is a terrifying passage in the Bible. And in it, basically, it's the end of time. And the dead, and this this qualifies them not just physically but spiritually, the dead are called by Jesus and they're risen to meet him face to face at what's called the great white throne judgment in heaven. Now, they are all spiritually dead. That's clear. The text says two times they each are judged for the deeds they did in the body. Friends, we don't want to be judged for the deeds we do in the body. We don't want to bear the penalty due our sins. And this this judgment is all about sin and its penalty. Now imagine this. Everyone at this great throne judgment is standing before the one who atoned for their sins. And they've rejected that atonement. 
There will be absolutely no excuse on that day when those who've rejected atonement stand before Jesus not as their Savior but as their judge. No excuse whatsoever. Jesus says this in John 5. He said, the Father judges no one. In in popular talk, we stand before God the Father for for, uh, the judgment. No, we stand before Jesus. The Father judges no one but has given all judgment to the Son. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment but has passed from death to life. Christians have eternal life now in this moment. We're not waiting for it. We have it. We've passed out of judgment into life. The Father has given him, Jesus, authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Don't marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice. As Lazarus did, everyone will. They will come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. This does not mean that those who have done good, that they've done something morally righteous. This means they simply accepted the free offer of salvation by God's grace through Jesus. God the Father has given the role of judge to Jesus, and it's the resurrection that bears testimony. He's the one that judges. I invited a friend to church not long ago. I was on my way here to one of the services. This is just several weeks ago. I was in Dillon's in the coffee aisle, picking up one of life's requirements, some good coffee. And I ran into an old friend I hadn't seen in a while. And so I'm on my way to church. I said, hey, why don't you come to church? And he laughed at me. And he said, I'm a heathen. I don't go to church. And then he he quoted an old blood, sweat, and tears song from the 70s. And he said, Mike, this is my philosophy. I swear there ain't no heaven, and I pray there ain't no hell. Now, I told him he was betting against Jesus and the resurrection. Why would you bet against Jesus? This is a no-brainer. Jesus or blood, sweat, and tears? Jesus or your philosophy? I have no problem with this. It's a fool's bet to think that we know better than Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead still matters because by it, God has declared that Jesus will be either every person's Savior or their judge. The question for us this morning is, are we living in the benefit, in the good, in the fruit of the resurrection? If you're not, and probably some of us in a group this big aren't, No one's pointing fingers at you, but I would appeal to you, by God's grace, you can accept Christ today. You can live in the benefit of sins forgiven in eternal life received today, and it's nothing someone else does for you. It's you simply opening your hands, spiritually speaking, and accepting that free gift, that free offer of eternal life because of who Jesus is and what he's done for you. If you come to trust Christ, if you come to find in him your Savior, tell God that, thank you for saving me through Jesus, and tell someone else so they can welcome you into God's family. Friends, Jesus' resurrection still matters because for every one of us, our eternal future, our eternal hope, our eternal destiny hinges, it hangs upon the resurrection and what we do with Jesus. Father, we cannot thank you enough. Words fail 
for what you've done for us in Jesus, your son. And Lord, would you help all of us respond with a hearty yes and amen to the offer of forgiveness you freely hold out because Jesus died for our sins and rose from the dead. Lord, it's the hope of heaven that draws us closer to you this morning. Thank you for loving us and saving us.